I'm Tavis Smiley, and we're glad to have you tuned in to this hour of our program. The first hour was amazing. The third hour is going to be amazing, but so will this hour be. An interesting and amazing dialogue as we talk about how elites ate the social justice movement. Here's the question. Can genuine change ever emerge from the fervor of social movements, or are they destined to fizzle out in the face of established institutions and elite influence. I am pleased to be joined now by uh, the writer and academic Frederick DeBoer for the hour. Frederick, good to have you on the program. How are you today, sir? Uh, I'm, I'm good. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Tavis. It's a thrill to get to speak to you. It's an honor to have you on the program. Thank you for the time. A lot to unpack in this hour, so I'm going to make the most of the time that we have. Let, 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 let me start with this. I was just saying a moment ago um, that uh, on Monday... Uh, we will commemorate, celebrate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. To my mind, there has been no greater movement for social justice in this country uh, than the March on Washington. One could certainly argue, and perhaps we will, uh, about the impact of Black Lives Matter. Uh, I've said many times uh, in my work and witness and even on this program that movements, as you know, Frederick, are very rare. We start with a moment. That moment uh, uh, can build momentum, and that momentum turns into movement. Moment, momentum, and movement. Movements in our country are very, very rare. We'll talk about that, I suspect, as we move through this hour. But before I get into your new book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, which drops in just a couple of days, I'm honored that Frederick chose to come on this program before the book even comes out. So thank you for that, sir. Um, but let me, let, let me just get your take on the March on Washington. Uh, because if the argument is that elites tend to eat social justice, social justice movements, how then do you read the successes that came out of the March on Washington back in 1963? So I think that uh, there's a few things that I would immediately say. The first thing I, I often find myself reminding people about the Washington, um, uh, March on Washington is that the full name was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That's true. And so, yeah, and so I, uh, one thing I always point out to people is that that inclusion of jobs in the title was central to what the civil rights movement was and is often kind of forgotten today. There was always a economic focus to the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King spent uh, the last several of his years um, deeply involved in the labor movement, his last major acts were to participate in a sanitation worker strike uh, in Memphis. Um, and so uh, one of the things that the civil rights movement did so well uh, is that it uh, <clears throat> helps to see people that to show people that these problems are not just problems of white people having hate in their hearts or of white people feeling uh, negative feelings for black people, but that what really the the sharp tip of racism spear was economic, that mm -hmm. black people were systematically excluded from economic opportunity in this country. I think another thing that we have to always uh, mention about uh, the civil rights movement is the black church of the time was a remarkably effective organizing vehicle for the civil rights movement. So the black church had engendered thick interpersonal bonds, meaning that people knew each other from church. The churches were often in uh, organizations 
that uh, banded different kinds of uh, black churches together. They were very geographically uh, distributed. So, for example, you would have black churches in the biggest cities, but you would also have them in the smallest little towns, which helped to make sure that it sort of you had the infrastructure in place. Um, so they were vehicles that enabled uh, regular people to be part of a much broader organization, and they could all come together and say, well, what do we share? Mm-hmm. Well, we share Christianity, but we also share the condition of being black in the 1950s and 1960s and all the deprivation of that. One of the things that makes me very nervous about the future of this country. Hold that thought. Hold that, that thought. Fred, Frederick, hold that thought. Hold that thought. I had to cut you off. I want to hear what that one thing is that makes you so nervous about the future of this country when we come forward. I also want to, uh, after you finish your point, probe whether or not by that, in that frame, and by that, by that frame I mean jobs and freedom. That was the full name of the March on Washington back in 1963. We, we we tend to think of the march being successful because what came out of it was the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, got you know, major legislation on housing in 1968. But by that measure, jobs and freedom, did the march on Washington actually measure up? In my entire career, I've never asked that question before. Through that prism, jobs and freedom, did the march on Washington measure up or did it get eaten up by elites as well? The argument that... Uh, our guest in this hour, Frederick DeBoer, makes in his new text. We'll talk about that and a great deal more when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. Our guest in this hour is the writer and academic Frederick DeBoer. His new book dropping on September 5th is called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. I hate to cut you off, uh, Frederick, moments ago, but you were just warming up for me when you were talking about the one thing that makes you most nervous about the future of the country. Finish your point. Take it away, sir. Yeah, I apologize for being long-winded. Uh, no, not, not a problem. The, we got, that's why we got an hour, brother. Go ahead. Yeah, the, uh, my, my concern is, so looking back at the black church, um, you look at American life in the 21st century and you say, what kind of organizations like that exist anymore? Mm. Uh, church attendance is down everywhere. Uh, black Americans still have higher levels of church attendance than the norm, but even the black church has seen major losses of attendance. Uh, we no longer have civic organizations like uh, you know, widespread participation in Elks clubs or in uh, local uh, Shriners organizations or in all, all manner of community organizations. Like the book Bowling Alone, which is all about the demise of these uh, organizations, was published in 2000. So almost a quarter century ago, we were already seeing the sort of collapse of places where people uh, gather that are not the workplace. And I wonder if we have the ability to form the kind of uh, coalitions and the kind of solidarity uh, that we used to if we don't have those organizations. Mm. And to your mind, that portends what? Well, I think the problem is that the sort of social media function, the Internet, uh, sort of fills the hole for some people in terms of having some sort of social engagement. But I think that those connections are very thin. So I think that if you look at uh, the 2020 moment, uh, uh, 
the reaction to the murder of George Floyd, but also just the last, you know, 15 years or so of political discontent across the world, you have the ability to inform a lot of people quickly with social media. You have the ability to get people to take the streets sometimes with social media, but those connections are thin. They're, they're not very robust. And as we have seen again and again, um, actual real progressive political change takes long sustained action. It's usually not very sexy. It's usually pretty boring to be frank. And I don't know if we have the kind of organizational, uh, uh, situation in the United States that can enable that now. And that says, again, I want, I'm going to come back to this a different way. That says, what do you specifically about the future of the democracy? Hmm. Well, I think that, uh, you know, my, my sort of fear that is, uh, I would say is like even more than a political fear is that I fear a world where we never see each other. Mm-hmm. When you think about, you think about, uh, uh, the life of someone who uh, works from home, uh, orders all their groceries or their meals, gets delivered to, to, to them. Uh, they uh, have an app for everything that they need to, to sort of uh, access. They don't go to stores because they have Amazon, etc. Um, a lot of people have sort of built these fortress-like lives where they never really have to uh, interact with anyone who is not a member of their family or a close friend. Mm -hmm. And I think that democracy requires us to be out in the community, seeing each other. You know, one of the things that I really valued about going through a public school system when I was young was I was constantly exposed to people that I would never knowingly choose to hang out with, but I still got to learn about them. And I think that that's a really important part of democracy is, you know, remembering there's people out there who aren't like you. And I don't know how that function gets fulfilled in the 21st century. Mm. Yeah, never quite thought about it in that way, which is why I always leave this studio smarter every day than when I walk in, because uh, guests always get me to uh, think about uh, the world through a different and see the world uh, through a different prism. And as I say all the time, we want to challenge folk to reexamine the assumptions they hold. We want to help them to expand their inventory of ideas. And that's not just true for the, the audience. It's true for uh, the host as well. Let me circle back to uh, the, the, the issue I raised earlier that I wanted to, to interrogate with you. Uh, and since you went there, again, I'm following you. Uh, so, again, on Monday, we will celebrate, commemorate the 60th anniversary, excuse me, 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. So we got a great program lined up for our audience next Monday. That said, um, you are correct, obviously, uh, in your uh, suggestion that the full name of that march was the March for, you know, March in Washington for Jobs and Freedom. We tend to think of, of that march 60 years ago as having been successful beyond the great speech that Dr. King gave. Um, what comes out of that is the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and major housing legislation in 68. So there's a lot of good stuff and not just good stuff. Let me, let me, let me put a fire point on it. This is seminal legislation that changed the country. I mean, it's major legislation that changes the country. So a lot of good came out of that march. And yet, if you look at it through the frame of a march for jobs and freedom, it raises this question now, again, that I've never really wrestled with in, in, a, in a public forum as to whether or not the march achieved all that it was that it was amped uh, or hyped to be in the first place. If we're talking about a march for jobs and freedom, you want to take that on? Frederick? 
Yeah, so I, I, I think that I would answer that on sort of two levels. Okay. On the first level, I, I would have to say, like, yes, the march was successful simply because, as you said, those two acts uh, remain the most important civil rights legislation in this country's history. It's also especially important to point out that without the Voting Rights Act, you know, nothing else is possible because the Voting Rights Act makes it a federal responsibility to protect the right of black people to vote. Uh, whereas in the past, the local sheriff might have been the person who was in charge of who got to vote. And very often they were white and racist and they prevented black people from voting. I, I, I think in that sense, those those acts were so monumental that um, we have to see the uh, the march itself as a success. It's not controversial to say that the Civil Rights Act sort of ran out of steam, so civil rights movement, excuse me, ran out of steam after those acts. In fact, uh, Martin Luther King uh, said that near the end of his life, Fred Shuttlesworth, another great um, uh, <clears throat> leader uh, who we lost not that long ago, uh, indicated that the, that the civil rights movement had run out of steam uh, by that point. And in fact, you can look at the Black Power Movement of the 1970s and see it as a direct response to uh, the sort of loss of momentum um, for the civil rights movement. And I do think that the fundamental problem was um, once you achieve those big acts, what you know, what is your next goal, and can you get everybody to agree to that goal? Mm -hmm. Because. I mean, that's a failure of the of, of uh, the 2020 moment. Uh, frankly, is um, they never really identified what their what their demand was. Mm -hmm. I mean, you say there, who are you talking about? Uh, Black Lives Matter, but uh, also just the sort of the broader sort of coalition of people who were supportive of Black Lives Matter and who saw the 2020. Uh, George Floyd moment as an opportunity for a real revolution in American life. All right, that takes us straight away now into your text. Uh, again, the book is called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. The book doesn't drop until September 5th, but you're hearing uh, the author, Frederick DeBoer, on Tavis Smiley right now. So let's go right inside the book then. Um, I, I, I see the frame that you're, that you're creating and building for us about what did and didn't happen in 2020 in terms of next steps. So when you titled the book How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, unpack that title for me. Sure. So... If you look at, okay, what are the changes that we can look back and say were accomplished in that moment in 2020 as a result of that? Um, we had moments, we have things like uh, investment banks like Goldman Sachs putting out statements uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. We have elite universities like Ivy League universities creating scholarships in George Floyd's honor. We have nonprofit organizations that are uh, <clears throat> are developing position statements and changing their employee handbook. Uh, we have the leaders of the Democratic Party draping themselves in kinte cloth and taking a knee in honor of George Floyd. So if you look at all of these actual changes that we can identify, they're all happening in the elite world. They're happening among the most highly educated people in the country. They're happening in institutions that are far removed from the life of the average American, whatever their race. And it, it's all happening at a, a distance from the question of, okay, how do we prevent police from killing black people and in general improve the lives of black Americans? Mm. 
The indictment of the elites. Unpack that for me. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think the fundamental problem with the sort of current American scene is not that our elite classes uh, are, generally speaking, uh, cruel or that they are necessarily particularly greedy or that they're immoral as personally as personal human beings. I, I, I have said this for all of this. I am an elite in the way that I'm talking about now. I have a PhD. I'm a writer, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with the sort of the elites is, as, in the way that I'm framing them is that because elites tend to be financially comfortable people who live in safe environments, they tend to fixate on symbolic things rather than on actual concrete uh, issues that can help people, including black people. So again, um, the the Democrats had that moment where uh, they all put out statements uh, about the George Floyd uh, murder, uh, which is great, and they you know they did all these symbolic actions. But when push came to shove, they didn't generate any national legislation whatsoever mm-hmm. to actually change the lives of actually existing black people. And as long as we have a class of leaders who are so divided from the actual day-to-day experience of ordinary Americans, it's difficult to ever get them to understand what ordinary Americans need. Mm. I'm processing three or four things at the same time. Uh, let me, let me get this out of my mouth first. <laughs> If the argument is that elites ate the social justice movement, did the movement sort of offer itself up, serve itself up to be eaten, or did elites come in like a cookie monster and just and just devour them? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to figure out. I'm, I'm trying to get to this this nexus of how they ate or had access to eat the movement, the social justice movement. Does that make sense? Yeah. So. Uh, I, guess, I guess this will get to sort of the controversial part. Okay, um, I like that. I, I think it's it's important to say that um, the the average Black Lives Matter activist, so the, the average uh, 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 black Black Lives Matter activist, that is to say, mm-hmm. um, is someone who obviously has an important point of view, was working from a position of justice, was very deeply invested in making the United States a fairer, more equitable place. But they were not like the average black American. And one of the things, the ways that the media failed is that the media kept looking at what black activists were saying Mm -hmm. and using that to represent as the sort of opinion of all black Americans. Uh, the, The average black American is not a, you know, big time lefty radical like I am, you know, like, like many people are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it tends to be a moderate Democrat who has uh, a lot of uh, fairly conservative views on social issues. It's also the case that um, over and over again, we've seen in, po- in polling that uh, average black Americans don't want the police in their communities to be defunded. Very often they ask for more police presence in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, the uh, the elite media, because the activists were the ones who were loudest, because the activists are the one they had access to, they uh, looked to them and said, "Okay, I'm going to sort of define 
what black America wants and needs according to the activist class, which is a good example of how there's sort of interests of a, of a small elite class um, sort of overtook the interests of the broader uh, population of black Americans. Mm. Yeah, this is getting good. It's getting rich. Um, when we come forward, I want to, uh, to to go right to this notion. Uh, if you're listening to what Frederick DeBoer is saying, as I am, I'll go right to this notion of, of whether or not then the, even, the, the presence, the involvement, the proximity, if you will, of elites to this movement, did it benefit the movement or did it co-opt the movement? I mean, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm pressing toward here is whether or not there's any anything good that comes out of the proximity of these elites to this social justice movement. I could ask the same question. We could wrestle with the same issue around the March on Washington. Uh, Dr. King said in a variety of ways a number of times that, that you know, his, his enemies oftentimes, the folk he was most concerned about, were the so-called liberal whites. King had that same indictment of liberal whites that you sort of hear from Frederick DeBoer in this moment talking about uh, this social justice movement over the last five or ten years here. So, again, some interesting parallels here. A lot more to probe when we come forward with Frederick DeBoer, author of the book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, who you're listening to right now on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 We're in dialogue on this hour with our guest, writer and academic Fred DeBoer. His book is called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. The book drops on September 5, but we are honored to have him on this program in advance of the book even coming out. We thank him for, for that for that high honor. Um, we were talking moments ago, Frederick DeBoer, uh, about uh, how, again, these elites ate this social justice movement. And I was, I was raising this question, which I want to get to now, as to whether or not anything good comes out of the proximity uh, the access that these elites have to this particular movement. As I said moments ago, uh, if one were talking to Dr. King right about now, you'd hear his critique of the elites and the, the, the liberal whites that he had to, uh, to, to, to dance with, as it were, uh, back in the day. And so he had his critique. You have your critique. But I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm just trying to figure out whether or not there's anything good that comes out of this. In, in any way, was the movement benefited by the, 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 the access that these elites had to it. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that um, there's two things that sort of uh, deeply impacted the visibility of all of this and that made this possible. Uh, if this crime happens, you know, the, the George Floyd murder, if this happens 10, 15 years earlier, uh, it's likely that it's never filmed. If it's not filmed, then there's not the immediate sort of impact of just like how raw and awful that footage was. But the other, uh, another big part of all this was, you know, the elites have access and influence within the media, within the universities, and within uh, government, and they were really able to spread the message. Uh, I, I would never underestimate or want to undersell how effectively they were able to channel the rage uh, about that event mm-hmm. and to sort of make it into international news and to sort of demonstrate to everyone what a great crime it was. I think the, the thing that makes all of this a little bit tragic is just how effectively they were able to create a spectacle, media attention, um, without any actual sort of response from 
you know, the sort of government action. Mm-hmm. All right, now I see where you're heading. Uh, let me let me follow you. Uh, we were discussing earlier the the result, the impact of the march on Washington, almost 60 years ago. Come next Monday, what comes out of that? The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and other pieces of important and seminal legislation in this country's history. Fast forward a number of decades, you have this particular social justice movement, Black Lives Matter, at the center of it. It kicks up uh, in a way that we could never have imagined post the murder of George Floyd. I wonder then if you can compare and contrast American policy reform. How would you compare and contrast policy reform after this iteration of a social justice movement versus what we saw back in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, the all of these things have to be judged within their actual sort of specific political context. And the, unfortunately, uh, the uh, Democrats have had the slimmest of majorities in the years since uh, George Floyd was murdered, and that has had a lot of impact on what could get passed or what could not have been passed. Mm-hmm. There's a bill called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill. Uh, it was filled with a lot of uh, tweaks to uh, to policing, increasing the amount of uh, documentation and statistics about police violence that had to be uh, captured, of banning federal police officers, federal agents from using chokeholds or doing no-knock raids, etc. A lot of the activists saw that bill as uh, weak key. They saw it as a, as a compromise bill, but it, it did have a lot of good ideas in it. Unfortunately, you know, um, we were unable to get that bill passed because of the composition of the Senate. So I don't blame those activists uh, for not being able to get real legislation passed, but I do think that it is a really sad statement about uh, the sort of situation our country's in that um, we had such rage and such emotion and such widespread belief in the need for change that and nothing happened. Mm. Um, to your point about nothing really happening, tie that back to the issue you raised earlier, as you see it, that the movement lacked any tangible goals. Um, that certainly cannot be said of the March on Washington um, 60 years ago, given once again, uh, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, et cetera, that came out of that. There were tangible goals then beyond even the issue of jobs and freedom. So uh, link uh, link the fact that nothing happened to your earlier argument that 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 that, that reality, in fact, uh, came to be because there was a lack of, as you put it, tangible goals. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I think it's important to point out that uh, the sort of ability to come together and sort of create a list of, okay, these are the goals that we want to achieve. You know, it's, you really do need some sort of a formal organization uh, or formal organizations uh, to make that sort of thing happen. And part of the issue with this era uh, of radical black politics, the Black Lives Matter era is, you know, there is no one organization called Black Lives Matter, really. There's a broad movement, but there's no one group that's in charge of it. And so you just didn't have the infrastructure, the leadership infrastructure, to be able to come together and say, uh, okay, 
Uh, how are we going to decide what's most important first? How are we going to uh, decide what our top priority is? What are we going to fight for the most? I, I think we, we can't underestimate um, the force of public opinion. There was a period uh, in uh, the months following uh, the George Floyd's death when even a majority of Republicans in polling were expressing support for Black Lives Matter in that moment. Yeah. So there was there was political will there. There just wasn't political results. Mm, political will, but no political results. Let me let me ask this question then, because I think this uh, ties in nicely, and that is that whether you're Black Lives Matter, whether you're uh, SCLC, NAACP, King, and those other organizations back in the day in the civil rights movement, you have to operate inside of political systems and structures. No way around that. You have to operate inside of these systems and structures. But these systems and structures, including government and political parties, this political apparatus itself has a way of moderating these movements, does it not? Yes, of course. And, uh, you know, moderation and uh, wanting to maintain sort of the battle between moderation in order to get things done and wanting to maintain uh, your radicalism, your purity, that's been a part of every political movement mm-hmm. in the history of the world, right? I mean, that, that is a thing that is just that is just endemic to these political movements. Um, I think that the uh, part of, again, part of the problem with the sort of current era is in the social media age, what you get rewarded for on social media is um, having the most strident voice, right? Being the most uncompromising, being the loudest and demanding justice. You don't really get a lot of reward from your peers. You don't get a lot of, uh, you know, likes or whatever mm-hmm. um, by saying, okay, look, we have to work from within a system. How are we going to do the best that we can in this system? That was one problem. But another problem that I think is really important to acknowledge is it's difficult to get a meaningful policy passed to stop co- white cops from killing uh, black people because uh, ultimately every individual cop has to make the decision not to pull the trigger, right? Mm-hmm. Not to uh, p- put his knee on sure. another man's neck. Sure. Uh, it's important to say the, the 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 killing of George Floyd was already illegal, but the cops did it anyway. Now there's four cops who are going to jail uh, because of his of his murder. But I think I think what activists would say, and they have a point, is you know it's already Ill- illegal to extrajudicially kill uh, black right. people. What we don't have are the tools to get cops to stop doing it. Uh, let's come and talk about that uh, in a moment uh, as we come forward. Uh, I've said many times that slogans are not solutions. That's my view. That slogans are not solutions. Uh, Frederick Boer tells us in his book that poses uh, seem to be more important than policies these days. Poses are more important than policies, and that's what's animating and driving this book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. More with Frederick Boer, the author, when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Frederick DeBoer's book is called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. It drops once again on September the 5th. But we are honored to have him in dialogue on Tavis Smiley um, right now. So, Frederick, I was thinking during that break, I, I take the point you made 
um, in defense of these activists uh, in this most recent iteration of a significant uh, social justice movement uh, at which Black Lives Matter was at the center. Um, to your example of Frederick, uh, of George Floyd being murdered by Derek Chauvin, y- you're right. And the activist would be right to say that it was already illegal to kill the brother in the way he did. What we lack are the tools to stop these individual white cops from making these decisions um, to take the lives, um, to not respect the humanity and the dignity of these black brothers and sisters they come in contact with. Which leads me to ask the following. Let me preface it by saying I understand that the challenges of the 60s are different from the challenges uh, of this era that we live in right now in late modernity. And yet I'm wondering whether or not you're willing to concede that what we're, what we're up against right now is not just a different kind of challenge, but may in fact be more difficult to tackle. What, what I'm getting at is that things were so bad, things were so obvious in, ni- in the 1960s that it was, it was in some ways, I'm putting the word easier in air quotes, easier for King and those in the movement to know exactly what legislation need to be passed, exactly what to do. Uh, I suspect one could, you know, give a list right now of things that need to be done. I certainly could, but I'm, I'm, I'm probing whether or not you think, having written this text, the challenges are not just different, but more difficult. Hmm. I, I think that that's a really uh, important point. Uh, and the way I, that I would personally frame it is that, um, uh, look, progress happens. I think that there is an unfortunate tendency among activists to want to deny progress. Mm-hmm. And I, I get it. I, I get why if you're someone who really wants to pr- push for more justice, why you wouldn't want to talk about things getting better. But some things have gotten better. So I'll uh, just to pick one thing at random, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> right now, uh, black students uh, have about a 5% higher dropout rate from high school than white students. 25 years ago, it was 40% higher. So mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a good example of just, you know, the kind of sort of subtle social progress that we're seeing. But, the, you know, the point that, you, that you're suggesting there that as the oppression gets less obvious, it also gets harder to address, I think is absolutely on point. Mm-hmm. I, you know, my position has always been the same when it comes to racial justice, which is you have to start at the pocketbook because if we could eliminate the income gap and the wealth gap between black and white people in this country, you'd be giving black people the economic ability to secure what they need for themselves and the the political influence to do something about it. Let's close our conversation talking specifically and directly about that. By the way, uh, Frederick's book that's coming out in September uh, is called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. There's another book he's written. It's a powerful text uh, that I would recommend. It's called The Cult of Smart. How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice, given the comment he just made. That book, once again, is called The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. Our remaining moments with Freddie DeBoer when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. forward. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. I think it's fair to say one of the central themes, if not the central theme of this book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, is that there was a moment not too, too long ago in this country where the entire nation 
seem to be roaring for change in one voice. Uh, as you heard uh, Freddie Dubois say earlier, even Republicans uh, at this moment a few years ago were uh, sounding off on the fact that uh, something needed to change in this country. So everybody is roaring about what needs to happen. Uh, we think that change uh, is, uh, is uh, on the precipice, and then all of a sudden, not much happened. And the more I think about that, Frederick, the more I, I, I am reminded, I've been at this for 30 years now, and uh, started when I was five, but I've been at this for 30 years now, and that tends to be what happens. And I guess the question I could ask right now and will is why we expected this moment to be any different. Uh, put another way, uh, I've said this many times that when all is said and done, usually more is said than done. So why did we expect in this moment, even with all the uproar, that this moment would be any different than any other American moment where you build this momentum and it just falls flat? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. I, if you would ask me in 2020, will a major change come out of this? I probably, my head would have said no because of what you said, because it's just always easy to bet against change. Mm -hmm. My heart would have said, yes, I hope so. Um, I do think it's important to say that um, a lot of politicians wrote a lot of checks with their mouths that they then did not cash yep. when it came to change. Tons of people donated a lot of money to organizations. We don't know where that money went. Um, even if we say, okay, what didn't happen uh, is depressing, we have to look back at the moment and say we need accountability. The people who said they were going to do things, we need to demand that they either do them or explain why not. And so the weekend, the next moment is a better moment, and we can get a little more done. We referenced Dr. King a number of times earlier in this conversation, uh, and King once said famously that change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability. Change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability. You have to be intentional. I added that part. You have to be intentional. King also said that we have to be uh, weary about taking what he called the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Once again, you have to be intentional. The point you made earlier about what would happen in this country if we could ever get black folk on the right foot, on the good foot, as James Brown might say, economically, that would fundamentally change things. But we've been talking about that you know, ad infinitum, uh, ad nauseum, and nothing seems to be changing in that regard either. Black people still lag far behind white folk in every single leading economic indicator category. So we know what needs to be done. It just ain't been done. This ain't a skill problem. It's a will problem. We'll leave it there for now. The book is called How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. The author of that text is Frederick DeBoer. The book drops on September 5th. I've been honored to have Frederick DeBoer on this program. Frederick, thank you, sir. All the best to you. Congrats on the text. Thank you so much. My great honor.